Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Today's episode is a little different than usual. No guest today. It's just me, all by my lonesome, parked here in my van in Waco Tanks, and answering your questions. This is the first Q&A of the podcast, and I want to start by explaining what I'm doing here and how it's going to work. Obviously, you guys are familiar with Q&As, but I hope that this one is a little bit different than some of the other ones out there. I'm a little bit surprised to find myself doing this because I definitely did not start this podcast thinking that I would be the one with the things to say. I'm much more interested in asking questions, and I do not consider myself an expert in anything, um, in climbing or training or nutrition or any of these things. I have spent a lot of time geeking out about a lot of these things for myself, but I'm not an expert and I'm much more interested in being the Tim Ferriss of climbing, if you will, and being the person that asks the questions to the experts so that myself and all of you listening can learn from them. But having said all that, I have been getting more and more questions from you guys over email and over direct messages on Instagram, and it's been super fun. It's really been nice to connect with a lot of you, and I've been surprised, actually, at the extent to which I've been able to help some people out there just through sharing my experiences and sharing some of the lessons and mistakes that I've made and hopefully helping you guys avoid them yourselves and just pointing people towards resources that have helped me and all that sort of stuff. And I I finally realized that I'm getting enough of these questions or that I'm putting enough time into answering these questions rather that it would make more sense for me to do a QA and a format where I read the questions and share my thoughts and uh, put some resources in the show notes and things like that so that if anyone else out there has a similar question, you can learn from it as well. Another part of this ties into Patreon and supporting the podcast. As you guys have noticed, I'm sure I don't have ads on the show, and that may or may not change. I'm not opposed to ads necessarily, but I want to be very picky about ads because I find them annoying in general, and I only want to do ads if I'm truly excited about them, and I think you guys will be truly excited about them. So I'm really into this Patreon thing. It's been going really well. I'm really excited about it, and it feels really good to have direct support from you guys. I appreciate it so much, and it's been really fun. Uh, The follow-up calls for 5 bucks a month, that's been super fun. I get a lot out of that. I really enjoy doing those calls, and it takes a lot less work than a normal episode because I already know the guests, and I don't have to do as much prep or editing or anything like that. So that feels like a win-win. And I hope this is kind of more the same. So the way this is going to work is I've been thinking for a while about how to do an additional tier for Patreon. And Q&As are going to be published like this as normal episodes so everyone can listen to them. But if you become a patron for $10 a month or more, you will be able to submit your questions. And I'll be doing a deep dive into whatever it is that you are curious about. And I hope that this first Q&A 
kind of gives you a taste of what to expect and the kind of depth that we'll be going into and just gives you a feel for it if you're interested. But again, becoming a patron is really more about just supporting the regular podcast and the, you know, the benefits of Patreon are just little ways for you to get something in return for supporting the show. So that's the idea here. $10 a month allows you to be the person to have your question featured in the Q&A. I just published something new too. So there's also a $15 a month option for this. And I'm going to give half of that away to Climbing for Change. So I've decided to support Climbing for Change because I really enjoyed my conversation with Kai Leitner. And I'm really impressed with him and what he's doing. And I really want to see his project thrive. So if you become a patron for $15 a month, I'm going to give half of it to Climbing for Change. And then you get all of the same benefits as the $10 tier for a little bit of a discount for 25% off. So $7.50 comes to me and I'll give $7.50 to Climbing for Change and you get all the same benefits as the $10 tier. And I plan to do these Q&As every quarter, once a quarter. So once every third month, I'll just be collecting the questions in the meantime and then once a quarter, I'll do a long-form Q&A like this, and I will publish it as a normal episode on the podcast. And again, everyone gets to hear the Q&A. So for the first one, because I am doing something new, and there aren't that many $10 patrons yet, I opened up the questions to all of my patrons. So I sent out a bunch of emails and got a bunch of great questions back. And that's what I'm going to be going through today. They are all over the place. Some of them are short and funny and fun. And some of them are much longer with a lot more context and uh, much chewier topics to dive into. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I would love to hear feedback on the format and what you think of this first Q&A episode. And with that, we'll dive in. Please enjoy the first Q&A with yours truly. This first question is from Nico. Nico has a question about mini projects. Nico writes, I'm curious about your process and tactics when trying to redpoint a sport route slightly above your flash grade relatively quickly. So roughly four to seven tries or two to three days. And how has your process changed over the years? So yeah, quick ticks. I think this is a great question quick ticks and climbing things in kind of this difficulty range. It's kind of my favorite challenge in climbing and what I spend most of my time doing. So I spend more time doing things that I can do in like two to six tries than I spend on siding easier things or red pointing super hard things. I think they're usually hard enough to teach you something and make you a better climber and to build fitness and strength, etc and easy enough to do a lot of them and build a lot of experience and mileage. And I think that goes a really long way. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of this. 
As far as my process and tactics, this is something that I had a really interesting conversation with Jonathan Segrist about back in our episode, episode 14, if you haven't heard it. Jonathan is one of the best in the world at this, I think. He's really especially good at doing things second try, so going up a route and spending the time on his first try to suss everything out and then just executing it on that second try. And I definitely think it is a skill, and I think it's something that we can continue to practice every time we go climbing. And I think it's an amazing skill because it allows you to send a lot of climbs more and more quickly. And I think it applies to projects and I just think it's awesome. So one of Jonathan's main points, and it resonated with me as well, is the importance of removing hesitation. So my answer to, to Nico is that what I'm trying to focus on, it's really a combination of memorizing key information about the climb and then visualizing so I can remove hesitation, like really preparing myself to execute a sequence without hesitating. The key information part, you know, it's it's really difficult. Jonathan apparently can do this, but it's really difficult for me to go up a route and memorize the whole thing the first time. It depends on the route. Sometimes you can. I find that the more varied the style, like the more unique the features and things, the easier it is. But, you know, if I'm somewhere like the red with just tons of similar holds dotting the wall all the way up in the mother load, it's really hard to memorize all that really quickly. So the way I approach it is the first try up a route, what I'm really trying to do is just kind of get my head around the climb. Like what is going on here? You know, where are the cruxes? Where are the easy parts? Where are kind of the moderate parts? Where are the rests? Just kind of get my head around it. Like, what is it going to take to do this thing? And then on that first try and for the next, you know, few tries, if it, if it only takes a few, I'm really being selective about what I pay attention to. And I think that's where the skill comes in. It's really a game of learning what information is most important to memorize without having to try to memorize everything because it's overwhelming, right? So on the first try, I will focus mostly on just breaking down the route into chunks and kind of getting my head around it and then really dialing in the hardest parts and the cruxes. And, you know, not necessarily memorizing every move, but like what are the key things that I need to pay attention to to set myself up to do the whole sequence correctly. So for example, maybe there's a foothold that's really key. I try like three different footholds and one of them feels the best. I'll put a tick mark on it and I'll make sure, you know, if there's a lot of options, I make a note of exactly where I need to look to find that foothold. And I'll keep that in mind. Like I need to put my foot on this specific little foothold before my left hand goes to this crimp. And then if I have the foothold in the crimp, boom, 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 the next three moves are really obvious and I don't really have to memorize them, right? So that's kind of the stuff that I'm looking for on that first try. And then as a route takes more and more tries, I'm really just adding more memorization. I'm just trying to remember more and more moves so that I can do them more efficiently with less and less hesitation. And then I'm also refining the parts that I'm learning are the crux. Like it's it's really hard to tell if you're dogging your way up a route and trying it for the first time 
just how hard something's going to feel on Redpoint. So you usually learn a lot from that second and third try where you're trying it from the ground, you're getting maybe to the crux, but you're tired. And now you have a much better sense of like, oh, this move that feels pretty easy off the dog is actually really, really taxing on my fingers and my fingers are pretty tired because there's this crimpy section down below, whatever it is. So yeah, it's a process of adding a little bit more memorization each try and then really refining the parts that feel the most important or where I keep falling, that sort of thing. So yeah, uh, I think it's a skill. I think it's a really fun game to play, trying to do things quickly. And I think it really improves your climbing. So I love the question. The next question is from Tony. Actually, he has a few questions. His first question is, what is your least favorite shoe you've ever climbed in and why? Actual climbing shoes, not like doing a pitch in Chacos or whatever. Yeah, so there's a shoe that came immediately to the top of my mind and I had to Google for it and it took me like 20 minutes earlier today to find it because it doesn't exist on the market anymore. But it's this old Evolve shoe and it's called the Optimus. And I think Chris Sharma designed it, at least the aesthetics of it he designed. And it's like the black shoe with yellow and the black covers the toe, but it has these little circles in it that you can see the yellow through the circles. Anyway, there's like the Optimus, which was a slipper. And then there was the Optimus Prime, which was a Velcro shoe. And I'm talking about the the Optimus, the slipper. It was terrible. It was really stiff on the bottom and didn't have very good sensitivity, but it was a slipper. So it had like no support and it would like bend a lot. And it was just like the worst of both. And I hated it. And it was the worst shoe I've ever climbed in. I hope I threw it in the garbage. I don't remember. And they smelled terrible. Those old Evolve shoes with this synthetic upper. For some reason, they're just the stinkiest shoes that have ever existed. Tony also asks, if you could do an episode with one deceased person, who would it be? Todd Skinner. Todd Skinner immediately comes to the top of my mind. He seemed like not only an incredible climber, but an incredibly delightful an interesting personality. He seemed like he got along with everybody and was really easy to talk to. And I would have loved to sit down with him and do an episode. So yeah, he is at the very top of my list. Favorite climbing related book? That's a good question. I've read quite a few. And I think my favorite one is Jerry Moffat's book. And it is called Revelations. And I will link to it in the show notes. It's really great. It is a combination of Jerry's exploits and his accomplishments. And just, I think my favorite part about it is that it's just a fascinating glimpse into a totally different world of sport climbing. Like what these guys were doing, sleeping in little caves in the winter in the UK and climbing 513s when that was the hardest thing in the world, eating like baguettes and jam. It's just unbelievable the level of dirtbag that these guys were living to climb and how hard they were climbing. And I loved it. It was fascinating. So yeah, Jerry Moffat, Revelations, highly recommend. Worst climbing bodily function story. I wish I had one. I know that's a disappointing answer. 
but I don't, I can't think of any. I've never shit myself on a route, knock on wood, thankfully. So, sorry, Tony, that could have been a home run, but unfortunately, I don't have a good climbing bodily function story. Although, it did make me think of a story. I have a very close friend, one of my best friends in the world. His name is Brent, and we were sitting around the fire this fall in Rifle, and he told me this story about an alpine route that he did in the Enchantments with another friend of ours. And he got heat stroke and was very, very sick. And our friend's just a monster and I think hiked him into the ground. But he told this story of following this 510 Alpine route and just feeling terrible and literally hanging in a hand jam and just vomiting off the side of the route. And it was an amazing story. I will try to have him on the podcast to share the story one of these days. So there you go. This next one is from Emma, and Emma has a question about how training works. Emma writes, the more I read and listen about methods and strategies for training for rock climbing, the more I'm aware that I really do not understand how training works. Uh, She really wants to understand the mechanics of training and how training benefits us. And she writes, I thought training was important because it makes you quote, stronger, but I'm beginning to understand maybe it's more about because it forms neural pathways to make the sport easier in real time. She writes, I have no idea what I'm talking about, which is why it's my question. So Emma's a friend of mine. Uh, This question's a little bit of a plant because she and I were hanging out a few months ago and we had some really interesting conversations about this. And I realized it kind of clued me back into how much confusion there is about some of this stuff. And I thought it would be really useful to dig into her questions. So I'm going to do my best to break this down and share how I'm thinking about it. Strength is really interesting in that we get strong for a number of different reasons and in a number of different ways that are all interconnected. Like there's a lot of adaptations going on when we train that are all happening at the same time. And I always find it interesting when people draw distinctions between strength and like recruitment or just neurological strength, because they really are, in my mind, all different parts of a larger thing that's happening. So uh, the first thing I would say is that there are two podcasts that I would recommend that really helped me grow my understanding of what is happening when we're training and what it means to become strong. Uh, They're both episodes from the Tim Ferriss show, which I am a huge fan of. And the first one is with Pavel Tsatsulin. Pavel is a former Soviet Union Special Forces physical training instructor. And he is basically the guy who brought the kettlebell to America and started this kettlebell revolution that we're all experiencing right now. Uh, He started a company called Strong First, and he teaches people how to get strong, and he's a huge fan of using the kettlebell to do that. If you are familiar with Steve Bechtel and Climb Strong, all those guys over there, or a lot of those guys have SFG certifications, and that SF stands for Strong First. So Strong First is... uh, a school of strength and they offer certifications for strength coaches and strength training. 
But yeah, Pavel's episode is really good. He does a really good job of explaining this concept of strength is a skill. And thinking about strength in that framework has really helped me understand it. And what that means, I'll do my best to give a quick overview of it. You know, obviously there are all these skills involved in learning a specific strength movement, right? Like anytime you learn an exercise, you're learning the skill to do it correctly. But beyond that, strength as a skill also means that getting stronger really, a lot of it really is about teaching your brain how to use your body and how to communicate with your muscles and different parts of your body effectively and efficiently as you're doing a movement. All of us have muscle in our body that we're not actually using or not really using to our full potential. The muscle's there, the muscle fibers are there, but it's up to us to teach our brain how to communicate with those fibers. And sometimes that requires more intensity or load. And sometimes it's just something that takes time. It's a process of refining a movement and teaching our body a pattern over and over and over, like learning any other physical skill, like learning how to play an instrument or something. Doing a strength movement with resistance is very similar in a way to sitting down and practicing a technical skill. We're teaching our body how to fire all of the right muscle fibers in the right order as quickly and effectively as possible. There's also this really interesting principle that Pavel talks about in that episode called irradiation. And what he really gets at is this idea that you know, none of the strength of our specific muscles for a specific movement are isolated. Our body really does work as a single unit. And a big part of becoming stronger is learning how to create tension in our entire body to support a specific movement. So for example, and you listeners can do this right now, even if you're sitting at your desk at work, and I think he does this in the episode, but if you make a fist, just make a fist with your right hand and squeeze lightly and notice what you feel happening in your arm. You'll feel a little bit of tension in your hand and maybe up into your lower forearm, like below the elbow. Now squeeze the fist twice as hard and you'll probably start to notice that your bicep flexes and that your tricep might flex and maybe even your shoulder and into your lat. Now squeeze your fist as tight as you can and you'll feel that almost all of your back is lighting up, muscles in your back and your shoulder and your chest and your pec and your entire right side of your body is starting to contribute to that effort. So that's kind of a glimpse at irradiation and this idea that strength is so much more than training a specific muscle group to do an action. It's really, we're really a unit and Part of becoming strong is learning how to create tension, but Pavel goes into a lot more depth with that. The second podcast is from Christopher Summer, Coach Christopher Summer, rather. He is the former U.S. junior national team coach for the gymnastics team, and he still teaches gymnastics, and he's an incredible coach. And listening to him really helped me understand what is happening to our soft tissues, to our connective tissue, to our tendons and ligaments and joints and things like that when we train. And 
those adaptations play a huge role in becoming stronger and they really can't be understated, but they take a lot more time than teaching our brain to fire a muscle or even growing muscle or repairing muscle. He kind of breaks it down and our connective tissues have a much lower metabolic rate than our muscles because they don't have their own blood supply. And I believe he says that where a muscle cell might turn over in a few weeks, for connective tissue, it's more like 210 days. It's like seven months to turn over the cells in your connective tissue. So they just take a lot longer to adapt. And I think this is a really good thing to keep in mind because we really can only become as strong as our weakest link. And, you know, climbers will understand this. Like in your first couple of years of climbing, your forearms probably got a lot bigger. But then if you've been climbing for, you know, five years or seven years or 10 years, your forearms probably haven't changed size noticeably in most of that time. But you continue to get stronger. And a lot of that has to do with adaptations to your connective tissue, to your tendons and to the structures of your fingers and hands. And that takes a lot of time. And I think it's important to know that because it helps me at least understand why consistency and sticking with something, sticking with a program is really important, even when you don't see significant gains. If you continue to hang on the hangboard a couple of times a week for six months, you're sending the signal to your body that you need stronger tendons, that you need more robust tissues, etc. And those adaptations are going to happen, but it takes a lot of time. So yeah, getting strong is really interesting. It's part your brain learning a skill. There are actually physical adaptations happening in your muscles, of course, and there's changes happening within the cells of your muscles and the mitochondria. They're learning how to produce energy more efficiently. You're building your soft tissues. There's a lot going on there. Um, and then, you know, to her question, she, she made a good point. Is it about getting stronger or is it about making all the climbing that we're doing easier? Well, when you become stronger, the climbing just feels easier. You know, if you take a climber who boulders V14, who's only ever bouldered and they've gotten their tendons crazy strong from years of hangboarding and campusing and bouldering, you can put that climber on a long 512 endurance climb and they're probably just going to crush it. You know, the climbing is going to feel very, very easy to them. So strength does lead to making climbing easier. And part of teaching your brain the skill of strength, it's like any other skill. Like if you get really, really good at a skill, an easier version of it is easier. And endurance climbing versus hard climbing kind of works in a similar way. And of course, there are different adaptations for endurance climbing that can help you take your endurance climbing even further. But yeah, we train to get stronger. And then the cool thing is that that strength makes all of our other climbing easier as well. Emma also wanted to know what she can do while she's injured. She has a knee injury right now. And if I had any recommendations for that. I think it's kind of a gift if you have an injury that it's a lower body injury if you're a climber. I mean, injuries still totally suck and they're never easy, but if you can still hangboard and if you can still work your upper body, you can probably come back from your injury even stronger than you were before. So I would definitely recommend some hangboarding. 
there's a lot of programs out there. There's a lot of free programs on the internet. If I had to make a recommendation, I really like the hangboard manual from Climbstrong. I think you have to pay for it, but it's a PDF that you can download and it's cheap. It's definitely worth the investment. I've purchased it myself. And it's just a really nice comprehensive collection of basically all of the hangboard programs that you've ever heard of all in one place. And it does a good job of telling you when you would use which ones and it really breaks them down nicely. So some of my favorites from there are the ladder program and the Go 100 program. I think those are both pretty simple and one might be better than the other based on your equipment and what you have. Of course, you can also try max hangs or repeaters. As far as repeaters go though, I am pretty psyched these days on doing more strength-based repeaters. So like a 713 protocol or a 610 protocol instead of your classic 73. The 73 is probably going to have more carryover to climbing directly in the short term, but if you're injured and you're not going to be able to climb for a while, I think you're going to get stronger from doing a more strength-based repeater protocol. So, But yeah, I'd start with the ladder program or Go 100. Those are really nice, simple programs, and even very experienced climbers can get a lot out of those. I still use both of those programs, so... I would definitely recommend some hangboarding, maybe twice a week, something like that. Uh, Do some weighted pull-ups or some sort of pull-up variations. Something that feels pretty challenging for five reps. So if you can do that with weight, that's awesome. If you need to take weight off or put your feet on a stool or something, that's totally fine. Wherever you're at is totally fine. Uh, But yeah, shoot for about five reps and do a couple sets of that a couple times a week. Maybe some pressing exercises, overhead press, or some push-up variations. Again, try to find a variation that's hard for like five to ten reps and stay in that kind of rep range. Do a couple sets of that. And then the last thing I'll recommend is the hard style plank. And that goes back to that episode with Pavel. He breaks down what that is. And I have found the hard style plank to be a really simple but really useful exercise for practicing building tension. And as Pavel says, it will make everything else that you do stronger if you've never practiced that kind of tension before. It's pretty cool. So there's some recommendations. And then finally from Emma, she writes, my final question is, I'd really like to know more about synapse exchange that occurs through training my good knee and seeing long-term benefits for my broken knee. I'm very excited about this notion. So yeah, she has a knee injury and we were talking about some really interesting research in cross-education or contralateral effects from training one side of your body. So there is a lot of really cool research that provides evidence that if you train one leg, for instance, if you have an injured immobilized leg, training your other leg, your strong leg, will actually benefit the immobilized or injured leg. So you'll actually help that immobilized or injured leg maintain strength and some muscle mass. So yeah, it's super interesting. It's fascinating what the brain can do, and it's definitely worth continuing to train that uninjured leg maybe adding in some one-legged squats or something. I think that'd be a good way to go. So yeah, pretty cool stuff. Katie asks, what inspires you the most aside from climbing? 
I really liked this question. I am very inspired by people who take the time to become very good at things. And I think specifically physical things, I find myself spending a lot of time when I'm on Instagram looking at like dance videos, usually solo, like people doing these really amazing dance routines. One of my favorite people on the planet, he has the Instagram handle Daniel Cloud Campos. He was a break dancer and he has moved away from that and produces films and does all sorts of interesting things, but he might be the most interesting person on the internet. And I love watching someone like that do what he does as well as he does it. I also love watching parkour and skate tricks and things like that. But when someone takes the time to get really, really good at something and they're doing something that involves using their body at the same time. I just love it. It's just really beautiful. So yeah, that always inspires me. And it's kind of nice to take a break from climbing. I love watching climbing and it's really inspiring to see people try hard. But, you know, and I'm embarrassed a little bit to admit this, there's always a little bit of a, a twinge there, you know, like, damn, I wish I could do that. And I really like exposing myself to other things that I would never do. Like I'm never going to take up parkour or skating, but it's really, really fun to watch people who are really good at it, who care about it a lot. And I just find it kind of delightful to just get a little glimpse into their world. This question is from Adrian. He writes, in the John Glassberg podcast, you said that you just stopped intermittent fasting. I was wondering how you felt doing it and why you changed your way of eating. Yeah, so I did. I recently stopped intermittent fasting, and there's two main reasons. The first one is that the more I've dug into intermittent fasting, uh, a lot of the research on it is in the context of a standard American diet, and it's shown to be really beneficial for fat loss and for improving people's blood markers and health in that context. I haven't found as much evidence that it's useful if you have a really good diet. So it might still be useful. I'm not sure. It's probably not as important, though, if you're following a healthy diet. Then the second reason is just logistics. I really liked intermittent fasting when I was working in a cubicle and working a full-time job, and then training in the evenings. I had plenty of time to eat a large lunch and then digest it and feel good training. But living on the road, I find that it just doesn't work as well. Most days I'm climbing or at least hiking into the crag in the morning, and it just doesn't really work to wait until lunch and then have a giant meal. So yeah, I've gone away from it. I feel honestly kind of the same. Um, part of the reason I liked it is because it saves time. You don't have to cook breakfast. But what I do now is I cook lunch and breakfast at the same time. I make my breakfast and then I make my lunch right after that before I clean up all my dishes. And then I put it in a Tupperware and then I don't have to cook lunch. So that's worked well for me. I haven't noticed any difference in my weight or anything like that. I'm not against intermittent fasting. Maybe I'll do it in the future, but, um, but yeah, feeling good. The next question is from Ted. He writes, you have alluded once or twice to your diet, intermittent fasting and keto. 
I'd love to hear your experiences on this. And it sounds as though you may have adapted your nutrition based on discussion with some of the guests. Uh, he continues, he said that he's been on a very low carb diet for a few years and he is more of an aerobic athlete, but is getting more interested in harder climbing. And the gist of his question is, you know, he feels good on a ketogenic diet, but he doesn't know if adding more carbs would help him or not help him to get stronger or to feel more powerful. So he's wondering whether he should eat more carbs and what my experience with it has been. And he also wants to know if I've made any fundamental changes to my diet that have made a big difference to my climbing and my energy and life. So yeah, all the usual caveats. I'm not an expert with this stuff. I have no certifications or anything. I'll just speak to my own experience. And unfortunately, there's kind of another caveat with that, where really the only time I've tried a ketogenic diet was in this weird journey that I had with really aggressively trying to lose weight and then kind of breaking my body down and regaining the weight. So I really don't know if I can speak to its efficacy. When I tried the ketogenic diet the first time around, I think I was in a caloric deficit pretty much the whole time. And I was still trying to lose weight and I wasn't losing weight. And what was happening is that my body was just putting a governor on my energy. And I just felt really lethargic and I felt kind of crappy. So I still don't feel like I've ever given the ketogenic diet like a proper try at maintenance calories and tried to sustain climbing. I just had an interesting conversation with Dave McLeod about this. And you can hear his take on it. it. seems to be working really well for him. A couple of things that I took away from that conversation is that Dave actually gets quite a bit of carbohydrates on the keto diet. He eats a lot of dairy in the form of Greek yogurt. And I think he said he gets about 100 grams of carbs per day, which is pretty high for keto, but totally makes sense in the context of an athlete, especially an athlete engaging in a glycolytic sport. So... I think if I were going to go back to a ketogenic diet and try to perform well with my climbing, I would pay attention to that lesson from Dave, and I would try to get probably a similar amount of carbs per day, either from dairy. I don't do so well with dairy, so maybe for me from like raw honey or something like that. So again, I don't know. Uh, part of Ted's question is that he is using the diet to try to maintain weight. I'd be interested to see what would happen if you introduced some, you know, whole foods, carb sources like fruit and maybe some raw honey. I don't think it's necessary to go on a ketogenic diet unless you have some sort of medical need for that. As far as whether or not more carbs will make you stronger or give you more power, I don't know. Go listen to Dave's episode. It's interesting to hear his perspective and maybe it's worth a try. Um... I don't think it's going to hurt you, especially if those carbs are from whole food sources. And that's one thing I would highlight here is that I think the grounding principle that I keep coming back to is that this stuff probably doesn't matter that much if your food quality is really high. So if you eat, if you kind of follow Dave McLeod's recommendations and you know the recommendations of all the other people I've had on the podcast who have experience with nutrition, Haley and Katie, again, 
that's a common theme. Like eat really high quality food, eat mostly whole foods, you know, one ingredient foods, foods that your great grandmother would recognize as food, not processed stuff, not stuff from packages from the store. But if you eat that way, then I think you're going to do pretty well. And these, you know, how many grams of this or that, I think that stuff is, is just kind of like nitpicking those last few percentage points. But I think you're going to get most of the benefit from just eating whole food. As far as what I've changed, though, a couple of years ago, I really made a concerted effort to eat more protein per day. And I really do think that has been a positive change. I did start eating a lot more meat, and I don't know, I can't say for sure if it was some of the other things that I'm getting from meat or just the protein, but I do think that is something that I will continue to do indefinitely. I feel like I've gotten stronger more easily than ever in the last couple of years, and I've maintained strength more easily than ever, and I'm heavier, so it's still kind of balancing out, but I think that has been a really positive shift for me. And I feel like I said in that solo episode that I did, I'm pretty confident that my hardest climbing is ahead of me. And I'm starting to believe that I have a lot more potential for strength at this body weight and eating a lot of protein than I had previously thought. So that's kind of where I'm at now. And I hope that helps. I've got a question from Yasna. And she might have wanted to be left anonymous. I can't remember. So sorry, Yasna. She writes, I'm certainly not a beginner, but from my perspective, I think the most helpful thing would be to hear how you or anyone handles hardship, not how you train to be yoked or whatever. (laughs) I'm going through a minor finger injury right now. And despite having my fair share of injuries over the years, I'm still kind of at a loss for what to do, and part of me is afraid, even though I am 100% certain that I will be fine relatively quickly. I love hearing personal anecdotes from non-professional climbers about this sort of stuff, and also I think hearing more of this makes people feel like they're not alone. So her specific question is, how do you mentally deal with injuries? Do you try to temper the psych or do you try to redirect it to other activities? And the final thing she writes is, I don't know much about your injury history, but those are a few things I've wondered about. So yeah, thanks so much for the question, Yasna. I think this one is really good and I can absolutely relate to it. I have really struggled with every single injury that I've had, even the very minor ones. And I've experienced that sensation of irrational fear every single time, even though I know I'm going to be fine. There's part of my brain that's freaking out that thinks that I will never be normal again. So I think that is a very normal experience and super hard. It's super hard every time. I want to share a lesson I learned from an old roommate of mine. I live with this person for several years and she struggles with a chronic illness and she's an amazing human being. I admire her very much. And I think I was dealing with like a finger injury or something. And I just remember feeling, maybe I was at home and I was complaining about it or just feeling kind of down. And I remember feeling really shitty because I was very aware of just how 
trivial and small it was, you know, like it's a finger. And this person that I'm living with has to deal with a very serious chronic illness every single day. And I was feeling kind of icky and shameful and bad about that. And she said a really kind and wonderful thing that I've continued to carry with me. And I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly how she said it, but she basically said like, you know what? I truly believe that no matter how much worse someone else has it, if you're going through something that is genuinely hard for you, that's an injury, anything that keeps you from thriving and living the life that you want to live, it sucks and it's hard and it's okay to feel that. There's always someone who has it worse and that doesn't diminish the pain that you're feeling. The pain that you're feeling is real. And it really hit me and I really thought it was kind of her to say that because she would likely trade her situation for a finger injury in an instant, you know, I think that would be a no brainer, but I think that's important to keep in mind. Like, yeah, it might just be a finger, but when you love rock climbing, when you've built your entire life around this thing that you love and that thing is rock climbing and an injured finger completely takes you out of the game, you're going to feel that and it's going to hurt and it's going to really suck and it's going to feel disorienting and that's okay, you know? It is important to keep the larger things in perspective, but don't feel like there's something wrong with you or that you're a narcissist or a terrible person for feeling bummed about that. You know, it, it really is real suffering and it's okay to feel that. So I'm still super grateful for that lesson from my old roommate. As far as uh, how to deal with it mentally and tempering the psych versus redirecting it. You know, before I ever got a bad finger injury, I always remember thinking that it was inevitable that it was going to happen eventually. And that when it did, I would be sure to make good use of my time. I remember thinking it's going to happen one of these days. And when it does, I'm going to spend a lot more time playing music. I'm going to do all these things that I'm not giving time to now and it'll be great. And then when it happened, I didn't want to play music. I was just super bummed. I wanted to climb and I couldn't climb. And I remember kind of feeling surprised and maybe even disappointed in myself. Like, man, I I really like the idea of thinking of of any obstacle that we come across in life as an opportunity. And I feel like I'm not making anything of this opportunity. But I don't know. I, I think you can't force it, you know? If I had wanted to play music, I would have played music. I ended up taking time off and I did spend a lot of time with a couple of close friends and it was kind of fun, but in a lot of ways I felt like I was just kind of training as best I could, staying as strong as I could and just waiting to get back to climbing. And I think it's really hard to pivot to something new once you get injured. A couple years later, I took a whole summer off for my elbows. I had some pretty severe tendonitis that just needed some time. And I was also super busy. I think I had just moved into the van or was building out the van and was working on 
trying to leave my job and do what I'm doing now. And that time it felt really easy. I don't fully understand what the difference was, but I think the second time I really decided to listen to my psych rather than try to force myself to do things that felt productive that I didn't want to do. So I spent a lot of time reading by the river and going on swims and just spending time outside. And it felt really good. And it felt like a really good recharge. And then when I came back to climbing, I was really psyched. And I think it helped after that first injury. The first injury was a bad finger injury. And I ended up being away from hard climbing for several months. It really showed me how quickly it comes back. I think that was something I had never taken much time off in my climbing in the 10 years leading up to that because I was afraid I would like lose all my gains or whatever. And I mean, I was just psyched. I didn't want to take a break from climbing. But that first injury showed me that you can take basically a whole season off and get right back to where you were relatively quickly. It does take some time, but you will get it back and you'll be stronger than you ever were before. So I think that second injury, it was a lot easier to embrace where my psych was at and just kind of roll with it because I knew that the psych would come back. I'd be strong again. I'd be stronger than I ever was before. And it was okay to rest. It was probably the best thing I could do to just rest my mind and rest my body and just kind of go with the flow. So, and then the final thing I would say is that I think it really helps to try to find another thing that you love before you get injured. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the climbers listening to this and a lot of climbers who really pursue performance climbing tend to be pretty driven people. And there's kind of this need to feel, at least I feel this need to feel productive all the time. And there was a time when I was trying to channel all of that through climbing. And when you're injured and you're not sending, it's a pretty sad place to be. And I really struggled with that during that first injury. So I think it really helps to try to find another thing, whether it's an activity, whether it's, I mean, I, I definitely feel lucky to have found it through this podcast where if I'm injured or have to take some time off, I have something else that I can focus on that feels really productive and scratches that productivity itch. And I think that's a really important thing. So if you can, I think looking for something like that, that you can be excited about before being in that situation where you're injured and you have to, I think that could be really helpful. This question is from Darren. He writes, my one and only question, when are you going to tell us about anorexic Steven and was it worth it? So yeah, he submitted this question quite a while ago and I shared it here because in case you missed it, I did share this story that I've alluded to a number of times on the podcast where I don't know if I was anorexic, but I was really aggressively dieting to try to climb harder. I just shared a 45-minute solo episode kind of unpacking that whole story and explained why it definitely was not worth it. He asked that because I did send a couple hard routes during that time. But uh, it was a massive setback, and I think I would have done those same routes and harder routes if I had taken a smarter path and just focused on getting stronger. 
The next question is from Jimmy. Can you talk about time length of training cycles, three weeks or five weeks? Have you tried both? Which do you prefer? Yeah, this is interesting. I don't think there's any magic number here. And I have tried a wide number of things. Uh, but having said that, I do think that different lengths make sense for different things. So an example of that is that if I were going to focus on building strength, I would probably want like a six to 12 week block to do that. I would want to invest more time in that because it takes more time and those gains are more persistent and stick with us and we can build on them year on year and season on season versus if I were going on a trip soon and I just wanted to train power endurance, I would probably do like a two to three week power endurance focus block for something like that, because that's an adaptation that will happen a lot more quickly. And you can focus that time leading up to a trip. You don't have to do a ton of it. And in fact, you're not going to get more benefit from doing months and months of it. It's probably counterproductive. So I think it depends what we're trying to train. One of my go-tos that I really like is to think of my training in four week long blocks with a deload week. And I think I learned this from Steve Bechtel. There's a number of other strength coaches outside of climbing that promote this as well. But if I'm training all winter, for instance, you know, this winter I'm down in Waco for probably three months total by the time I leave. I'm kind of thinking of it in these four week blocks where I'll have three weeks of kind of building and trying to climb harder and harder climbs and working on projects. And then that fourth week, I'll either back way off on the volume or back way off on the intensity and then repeat that cycle. And you can use that template for any number of programs, but that's kind of my go-to for most of the year is kind of thinking of my climbing and my training in these four-week blocks. And the reason you would do that is because it's really hard to nail the overall training load in your climbing and in your training. It's really hard to strike that perfect balance where you're doing enough that you're telling your body, you're sending it the signal that it needs to adapt and get better and get stronger or build more endurance or whatever it is without overdoing it, without pushing too hard for too long and ending up in this kind of recovery hold that's really hard to bounce back from or getting injured. So what that does is if you build in a deload into your routine like that, it gives you this buffer. And so every fourth week, you're giving more rest than you need. And it's allowing you to kind of make up the difference and catch up in case you were doing a little bit too much in those three weeks leading up. So I think it makes training really, really sustainable. And it can feel hard at first if you're new to it to back way off on that fourth week because you're psyched and you just want to train. But you know, if you do that 12 months out of the year, that's a lot of really high quality training and climbing. And you're going to have a much lower risk of any injuries or burnout that are going to set you back for a long time. Another question from Jimmy, any favorite playlist to listen to while training? I am an album guy. I really like listening to albums. I mean, I listen to more and more playlists these days with Spotify and everything, making it so easy. But I really like listening to albums. A few of my favorites, I really like 90s hip-hop and early 2000s hip-hop. So some of my favorite training albums are Most Deaf, Black on Both Sides. I love that one. 
There's a Mob Deep album called The Infamous that I love. I'm a huge fan of Anderson Pack. I really like his Malibu album, although that's not so much of a training album necessarily. And then, oh, there's one more. If it's Deadlift Day, my go-to for sure is T.I. Urban Legend, especially that first song, The King. If it's Deadlift Day and I just need to pick up something heavy, I throw on that song and it gets me psyched every single time. This question is from Adriel. Advice on helping newer climbers work through mental blocks, i.e. being afraid of falling and hurting themselves, bouldering or lead sport climbing, even if their fall is relatively safe. How to help someone who can't make a move they can definitely do, but the fear just paralyzes them. The first thing I would say is that I think this is everyone, at least at first, so you're not alone. Climbing is a very unnatural thing for most of us if we start later in life and it feels really freaky at first. I was definitely very afraid, especially in my sport climbing when I first got into it. I think one of the things that I do that really helps if I'm climbing a boulder that has a weird fall or is kind of tall or I feel like I could come off and it has a wild move or something like that. Same thing for a sport climb, something intimidating like a really goy move where I'm above a run out or something like that. I think it really helps me to feel out the fall. You know, for a boulder, that might mean if there's kind of a weird dyno or something like that, I might climb up to it and just kind of like look at the move and look down at the pads and just kind of like take almost a practice fall a couple of times and just get a feel for it, you know? Like, I don't have to commit the first time. I'm just kind of getting a feel for where I'm going to come down, whether or not the pads are situated correctly, etc. And then same thing on a sport climb. I think, you know, it's okay to kind of take it in steps. You don't have to go for the move the first time if you're intimidated by it. You can kind of climb up to the move and then make sure your belayer is giving you encouragement and telling you that they are ready for you and then take a practice fall. I think that can be really helpful. Another thing that really helped me, you know, I bouldered for a really long time before I got into sport climbing and I was pretty strong relative to my sport climbing ability. And I remember really having a hard time on 5.11s because they were easy enough for me at the time that I could basically be in control almost always. And the climbing wasn't hard enough to demand my entire attention. So I would focus a lot more on where I was above my bolt and what the fall was going to be like. I kind of freaked out. And one of the things that helped me the most was actually deciding to get on harder climbs. Because for me, I think I had climbed like V8 or V9 by this point. And I was still struggling on 5.11s. And I remember trying my first 12A and the climbing was hard enough and technical enough that it really demanded my attention. And there were some hard moves on it. And it, it got me to start thinking more about the moves and caring more about sticking the moves. It, it demanded my focus enough that it took some of that focus away from being above my bolt or what the fall was going to be like. And that really helped. And if you can find that mode and get yourself to go for the move a few times and take the fall, 
there's this cool experience where you just kind of find yourself hanging at the end of the rope after taking a comfy fall and you're totally fine and you weren't even thinking about it. And you're like, oh, I fell and here I am and I'm okay. And it just starts to become more comfortable. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it, just like anything. And there will come a time where you'll hardly think about it and you'll feel really, really comfortable taking big whippers and it will even become fun. It's really cool. But also don't feel bad about it. It's definitely scary. There's a reason that your brain feels scared. It's trying to keep you alive. And you just have to teach it through repetition that you have these ropes, you have these bouldering pads, you're going to be fine. But that takes some time. So keep practicing. Another question from Adriel. I recently came off my latest finger injury. I've had three total and I'm getting pretty good at healing them, but would love tips to avoid them. How much can you train in a month sustainably? The short answer is I have no idea. I think there's a lot to unpack in that question. And I think it depends on so many factors. I'd be really hesitant to, to even try to answer that, but I won't leave it at that. I'll try to provide some helpful context. So for me right now, I'm in Waco and I'm only bouldering three days a week. And I'm going to share an episode talking a lot more about my trip to Waco and what I'm doing with my training here. But right now I'm bouldering three days a week and one day is like limit bouldering. And then one day is basically like medium intensity for me. And one day is like hard like kind of hard, not limit, but pretty hard. And that's it. I'm only bouldering those three days per week. And then every fourth week I'm doing a deload. So not a ton of climbing. And I mean, a lot of people certainly climb a lot more than that or train more than that. I've also tried training much more frequently in the past in training five or six days a week. But in those cases, my sessions were really, really short you know, my longest ones being like two hours and some of them being like half an hour. So it really depends. I think it's really hard, but I think, I think it's important to know that, you know, you don't have to train as much as you physically can. You don't have to train at the limit of what you possibly can to make improvement. You know, I think the 80-20 principle applies here, where if you train enough to get stronger without risking overdoing it, you're probably going to get most of the benefit there versus training the maximum amount that you possibly could in the same time frame. So I think taking the kind of longer, slow and steady approach here is really helpful. Uh, this is where hiring a coach or at least getting a consultation could be really helpful. And learning how to pay attention to your body, learning how to notice those little red flags that are telling you that maybe it's time to back off, things like that. So the fingers take a long time. They take a long time to adapt. And it's pretty detrimental when we overdo it. So, yeah, I wish I had more to say on that, but... I think that's the best I can do for now. Feel free to shoot me an email with a follow-up question if you want to give more context or explore that more. I'd be happy to continue talking about that. His final question is, I would love to hear more general tips on hard 
And by hard, he means 5'11 and up, finger cracks, if you've got any. This is definitely not my area of expertise. I've climbed up to 12 minus on gear a couple times. I'm nowhere near as proficient with track climbing as I am with sport climbing. So keep that in mind as I give my best shot at an answer here. But one thing I've noticed is that I really think that general strength training that you would do with any other type of climbing applies to crack climbing, especially to finger cracks. You know, I've hardly done any crack climbing and I've managed to climb 512 or 12 minus anyway. And I think it's because finger strength applies and most of your climbing skills apply. There's definitely specific skills that you have to learn and some specific strengths. There's a lot of like slow, long lock-off movements in trad climbing, especially like a lock-off movement. If you can imagine your hand being right in front of your chest and you're pulling down really hard and you're locking off in that position for a long time while you reach high and place gear, things like that, you know, that's a little bit different but you could probably do some like deep lock off work or like pull downs in a gym. But yeah, I think that, you know, fingerboarding and normal climbing and even normal endurance climbing will apply to finger cracks. And then it's just a matter of getting time on them to learn how to apply those techniques. So yeah, I don't think there's any magic training tips or anything. And I have noticed, like, I actually do a lot better on finger cracks than wider cracks because if you sport climb a lot and you start climbing on pockets, it's not too dissimilar a lot of the times. A lot of times you can kind of, like, cam your fingers in pockets, and I find that that carries over to finger cracks pretty well. So, yeah, if your goal is to climb finger cracks, then try to find some finger cracks. And if you can't find any or you don't have access to any, I think just doing any climbing and especially like technical face climbing with pockets, I think we'll have really good carryover. I think the footwork is probably the trickiest part. So, you know, that just takes time and um, make sure you maybe read some forums to try to figure out what the best shoes are to wear for the area you're climbing at, that sort of thing. But yeah, that's all I would say. The following questions are from Heather. Heather had some really good questions. She asks, do you have any advice for a climber who is getting into their first season of training or thinking of training for the first time? I have been climbing consistently for about three years and I'm about to start the rock climbers training manual program. This will be the first actual training I've done for climbing besides just climbing. Yeah, I think this is a really excellent question and there's a lot to dig into here. I'm a huge fan of the program. It was actually the first program that I did when I started training for the first time. I'd been climbing longer at that point than three years. I'd been climbing for quite a few years and, and was probably already at a 513 level. And for Heather, I think it'd be really worth kind of exploring your motivation and your psych. I think it's really important to really think about what you want to do with your training, like what sounds fun to you and being okay with trying a program and seeing if you enjoy it or not, you know, like there's a lot of talk about the value of sticking with a program and that's absolutely true. You know, you're, you're never going to know if a program works if you don't stick to it, but 
I think it's also okay if you're new to training to feel some things out and to see what you like. Uh, this program in particular is very prescriptive and it's going to feel like kind of grinding and punching the clock. And that might be great. If you're psyched on that and if that sounds fun to you, then awesome. Go for it. But I do think, especially if you've been climbing for three years, you can probably get the same adaptations and the same improvement and the same strength and endurance gains and things from really just doing a lot more climbing, not more climbing, but just through climbing and bringing some structure and intention to your climbing and kind of organizing it. So for example, you know, the rock climbers training manual, you're supposed to do a couple weeks of arcing and really put a ton of time in on the wall and build your aerobic base. You could definitely do that. You know, you could do exactly what they suggest or just do a lot of pitches and get a lot of climbing in for a while. And then, you know, they have like a month long period where you do basically just a ton of hangboarding and strength training. And that's kind of all you're doing. And you could do that and your fingers will definitely get stronger. But, you know, if you've been climbing for three years and your body's still kind of in the early stages of building these adaptations in your fingers, you're probably going to get just as much benefit from spending that same time on boulder problems. Like you might need that kind of structure later in your climbing career. But I think an interesting thing to try and, and something I've tried in the past and I actually was quite pleased with, with how it went was, you know, instead of doing all these repeaters on the hangboard, you can pick a few different boulder problems that are about maybe 10 to 14 moves long. You know, most repeater protocols, you're doing like five, six, or seven reps, and you can kind of multiply that because you have two hands, right? So try to find like a 10-move boulder problem or a 12 or 14-move boulder problem, and that's going to be about five or six or seven moves with each hand. And you can do repetitions of that boulder problem with a three-minute rest in between. Like find something that's hard for you where you're either sending it barely or you're falling right near the end and try it three, four, or five times with a three minute rest in between. And, you know, find two or three or four boulders that are slightly different styles, slightly different grips, things like that, that kind of fit into that. And come back into the gym and have a session like that, you know, a couple days a week, something like that. I think you're going to get really similar benefits in your fingers and in your hands that you would get from doing a lot of repeaters. But you're also going to be practicing those climbs and doing a lot of moves and getting better at climbing. And I think it's okay to be a little bit less structured and a little bit more free with your training and, and not stressing about the details so much at this stage. I think you can still get really, really strong without tons of structure. And and if you want to try some strength training, if you want to try fingerboarding and lifting weights and things like that, what I do these days is most of the year, you know, I mostly climb, but then I might have like two short sessions a week that I can knock out in like half an hour, you know, either at the beginning or the end of a training session or a climbing session rather, where I do some hangboarding and then some weightlifting. And you can get a lot done and you can get a lot stronger from something like that. But then you can continue to spend a lot more time climbing. So again, I don't think there's any best program or bad program necessarily. There are 
probably are some bad programs out there. I, I absolutely don't think this is one of them. I think this is an excellent program. But, you know, whether or not it's a good first program, I think I think it's okay to feel it out and see if you like it and maybe shop around and, and see what you like. But remember to keep in mind that at this stage in your climbing, you're probably going to get the most benefit from spending more time climbing and erring on the side of less time training, either on hangboards or with weights. That's probably the best way to go. Another thing I want to highlight is that I think expectations are important to keep in mind too. You know, like training for your first time, it's not going to be a miracle. You probably will notice some benefit from it and it will probably get you psyched to do more of it, but you're not going to become a pro climber after one training cycle. You know, this stuff takes a lot of time. And I think if you're really psyched on climbing and you really want to improve, I think the most important and the best thing you can do for yourself is to really explore until you find something that you really enjoy and that you're going to be able to stick with over the long haul, because that is going to make the biggest difference from you. This stuff takes years and years and years. And if you can find something that you can stick with for a long time, you're going to get really, really good. And it's going to be awesome. She writes, I want to hear some about your van. This could be anything. Have you learned anything new about yourself and or the world since making the transition? Is this a sustainable lifestyle for you? Why or why not? Thank you, Heather. This is a really interesting question. What have I learned about myself living in the van? The first thing that comes to mind... I haven't fully formed this thought, so we'll see how it goes. But I've realized, like, I have in my head all these ideal routines, you know? I really like the idea of having a simple life where I wake up and I stretch while I have my coffee. And then I meditate and then I journal and then I get some work done and then I do some training and then I go on a walk and I just do all these things that I know are really good for me, these good daily practices, right? And I think I had this thought leading up to making this life transition, you know, when I was working that I just needed the time. Like I didn't, I wasn't doing all those things because I didn't have the time. And I think I've learned that that is absolutely not true. And the reality is you either make the time or you don't. So I live by myself in the van and I do work a lot and I do climb, but I definitely have the bandwidth to make time for all of those things that I just mentioned if I want to. And I very often don't. <laughs> and I've learned that, you know, whatever your habits are, whatever your tendencies are, you bring those things with you everywhere you go. And it's up to you to change them if you want them to be different. I mean, it can kind of help to change your physical environment, but, you know, wherever you go, there you are. So, yeah, that's one thing I've learned. I'm actually kind of at a cool transition right now where I'm, I'm really starting to focus on what are the things that I really enjoy? What are the things that give me a lot of energy that I want to focus on? You know, there's... A lot of things I've done in the past, like certain meditation practices or journaling or things that kind of felt like a chore. 
And I felt like I had to check this obligatory box every day. And it ultimately led me to go away from those things for a while. And I feel like I'm, I'm at a cool point where I'm coming back to some things like meditating and doing some journaling and just really enjoying it and not worrying about doing it a specific way or a specific amount of time or doing it every day. I'm just doing it when I want to do it. And for example, journaling about what I feel like journaling about, and there's no pressure or obligation. And it's been really, really nice. And I'm actually doing it consistently because it's just enjoyable and I want to. So yeah, that's been a really cool thing. And sustainable lifestyle, I don't know. It feels really good for now. This podcast really helps. It really helps me stay connected to a lot of amazing people, you guys. And it's been really wonderful to connect with a lot of you guys. Uh, That's really provided a lot more community and connection than I anticipated with this whole project. And that has been super cool. But... I think I do want to live in a house someday in a cool climbing area or near a cool climbing area and maybe be able to travel on longer trips a few times a year, but have a home base. I think that sounds really nice. So I'm really enjoying this for now, but probably not forever. We'll see. What are some of my biggest climbing takeaways? I.e., how do you feel like climbing has benefited your life? What are some things and or people that have made you the climber you are today? Man, climbing is everything to me. I mean, as far as how climbing has benefited my life, I don't even know how to tackle that. It's really given me everything. And if it hadn't been climbing, maybe it would be something else, but it really has been the vehicle Climbing has really been the lens through which I have lived my entire life, you know, from what I do now for a living to how I spend all my time to all the people I meet and the places I go. And I mean, most of my closest friends, it really has given me everything. And I have no idea. I think this is your next question, actually. I have no idea where I would be without it, you know. I probably would have continued to pursue music, but I always had a pretty mixed and messy relationship with music. I loved it, but I also had a lot more inner demons, I think. And climbing just feels a lot less complicated. Like I just really enjoy it and I want to get better and I'm still driven, but it's uh, had pretty much nothing but a positive impact in my life. And what has made me the climber I am today or what experiences and people? I'll share one that comes to mind. I just shared that solo episode about the eating disorder. And I made an offhand comment in that, that, you know, the silver lining was that in this roundabout way, that experience led me to where I'm at now and the podcast. And I was thinking more about that and it's really true and reflecting back on that time, you know, leading up to that, 
climbing really was the only thing that I was really focusing on. Getting better at climbing so that I could achieve my own goals and climb my dream routes was kind of my singular purpose for a number of years living in Bend. And I had a full-time job, but that was just a job. And I was very, very zeroed in on climbing. And I realized that that worked and was fulfilling only as long as I was doing well, only as long as I was improving and sending and moving towards my goals. And so when I had that experience of losing all the weight and then really gaining it back, that was kind of my first really big dip in my climbing. That was kind of the first time where my climbing performance really took a dive and stayed down for a couple of years. And what came from that was this realization that without doing well at climbing, I didn't have a lot else to fall back on. I felt pretty empty without that purpose and progress in climbing during that time. And it really showed me that my life was kind of empty. I had neglected a lot of friends and had become pretty reclusive and kind of cut myself off on purpose so I could focus more on my own training and performance and things like that. And I wasn't pursuing meaningful work. I was just working a job that was paying the bills and I didn't really care about. And I think going through all that, it was really the first time where I realized like, oh, this climbing thing is not necessarily going to be here forever. Like this is a precious and fragile thing. And I can't expect for it to be the only thing that sustains me. It's going to have more of these ups and downs. And so that really got me interested and, and really lit a fire under me to start exploring other things that I could do and other things that I could do for work. And it really got me seeking. And that really is what led me to this podcast and a much more fulfilling and rich life than I really could have hoped for. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. So a pretty rough experience with a pretty significant silver lining that led me to where I'm at today. Thank you for those questions, Heather. The next questions are from Casey. She asks, do you train on the road? If so, how? Uh, yeah, I do a little bit. I haven't trained much in the last year. I've mostly just been trying to focus on climbing for fun and thinking of climbing as play and still trying hard, but not stressing about it and focusing on the podcast. So I felt like I needed a break from training and from kind of structuring my improvement and training and climbing and things. But I'm pretty psyched on it again. So I do have a hangboard rig in the van. I have actually a few different <laughs> hangboards in this portable setup or this mountable setup rather in the doorway. I also have a few kettlebells and you can also, it's pretty amazing what you can do with body weight training if you learn some tension techniques, which goes back to that podcast with Pavel. So... Yeah, hangboard, kettlebells, and bodyweight stuff is how I train when I train. 
Mostly I climb. Mostly I'm trying to organize my road trip in a way where I can get stronger by climbing. Her next question, she writes, talk about how you're structuring your climbing during this Waco trip. It seems like you're finding a lot of success with your approach. So yeah, Casey is a friend of mine and she was just down here in Waco and we got to climb together. And yeah, I'm going to be doing an episode about this. I have been getting some coaching from Steve Mesh that has been incredibly helpful during my time here. And I already talked about this a little bit in my answer to Adriel. But yeah, we're kind of doing this three-day-a-week thing with a really hard day where I focus on something really hard for me. For instance, a V10 that's hard for me that's going to take multiple days. So that would be on Monday. And then Wednesday is pretty moderate, and I'm climbing mostly on things in like the V6, V7 range. And then Friday is kind of hard, but not super hard. So like V8s and V9s. And all the while, I'm really focusing on building this boulder pyramid. And there's all these rules about how many of each grade I have to do before I can progress. And that's the stuff I will dive into hopefully soon in an episode with Steve where we really geek out about this. I think it'll be really fun. So that's the gist of it. I think it's been really awesome because... It's always hard for me when I go on a trip if I don't have any plan or structure. I tend to either do a lot of volume or a lot of projecting, but I'm really bad at doing a combination of both. And I think it's actually been awesome to do a mix of both. I think I'm getting stronger and getting close on some really cool projects that in the past would have been really hard for me. And then as far as success, It's been interesting. It's been an interesting trip. You know, I think because I have been doing that approach, I've just gotten on a lot more climbs in that V6, V7, V8 range than I otherwise would. And because that range is a few grades below my limit, I've done a lot of them. And that's been super fun. And it's been really satisfying to just cruise around and do a lot of the classics. But I've also really struggled on some of my projects. So it's kind of a mixed thing, you know? I think it's really helpful to mix in those climbs that are a few grades below your limit. I think, and you know, Steve's theory too is that spending a lot of time in that V7, V8 range is going to be the stuff that makes me stronger. And it's also really fun to send stuff and to try things that aren't quite at your max. And to just do a lot of cool climbs. So yeah, I, I like I said, I'll be hopefully doing a full episode with Steve and we can really geek out about this stuff and I'll share more details. But I've really enjoyed the trip and I think I will continue to use this kind of approach in the future. I think it's a really fun way to, to structure a trip and, and get a lot of really good quality training out of it. And I should say I'm like, almost doing no training outside of that. Um, I'm just doing a short workout after climbing a couple days a week and uh, I'm feeling really good. So yeah, really enjoying it. This question made me laugh. Casey writes, why does everyone say your van smells good even if they are vegan? Is it because everyone needs beef? Just kidding, kind of. Yeah, so there's this running joke. So I eat a lot of meat and I always cook meat in my van because I live in my van. And 
everyone always tells me how good my van smells. And I think that's why. I think that's what they're smelling when they say the van smells good. And it is really interesting. I've definitely noticed that even my vegan friends seem to really love the smell of cooking meat. And I don't know what that means, if anything, but it is interesting. Her next question, I'd be interested in your diet changes that have helped you feel good while bouldering. Is your bouldering diet different from your sport climbing diet? Yeah, I'm feeling good here lately in Waco. If you're curious what I'm eating, I did share that in my recent solo episode, just kind of gave a brief overview. As far as the difference between bouldering and sport, yeah, that's interesting. I, I probably will go slightly higher carbohydrate during sport climbing when I go back to sport climbing. I think that's the only real difference is it is a more glycolytic sport. You're just spending more time being pumped and you're spending more time in that anaerobic energy system where you're burning glycogen. So I think more carbs is probably helpful, but that's probably the only thing I will change. And I'll probably have to experiment. I don't really have like a a formula that I know for sure is best for sport climbing, but I'll probably add some more carbs. Favorite other podcasts? Yeah, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I'll just share a few. I'm still a huge fan of the Tim Ferriss show. I've actually been on a Tim Ferriss kick recently, which has been really fun. I really didn't listen to him for quite a while, and I've kind of come back around and I'm catching up on some episodes. I just listened to one he did today with Elizabeth Gilbert, and it was fantastic. So I recommend that. I will link to it in the show notes. And I think my favorite of all time is his episode with Jamie Foxx from several years ago. I think it was like 2015, but I will link to that one as well. That is just an outstanding interview. Another favorite is Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. I find his openness and vulnerability and his willingness to own his shit very inspiring and refreshing. And I really enjoy the show. It's often very deep and very real. It can also be very informative. And a lot of the time it's very entertaining and funny. So I really enjoy that one. And then the final one I'll share, and this is a total curveball, but a podcast that I would recommend to absolutely everybody is called Everything is Alive. And it's an interesting show, short episodes. They are, I think, 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes each. And the premise is just fantastic. These are short interviews with inanimate objects played by voice actors. So for example, I believe the first episode, the interviewer is talking to a can of off-brand cola, and it is delightful and incredibly clever, and it puts a smile on my face every time. So the show is called Everything Alive. I definitely recommend starting with the very first episode. I believe it is called Lewis Can of Cola or something like that. And I will link to that one in the show notes as well. 
These are still questions from Casey. Thoughts on flexibility. Do you work on it? If so, favorite exercises, stretches? I do a little bit. I have a morning routine that I do that I actually got from my friend Jesse that I have really enjoyed. It's kind of like a daily joint warm up where you just kind of take all of your joints through their end ranges of motion. So moving the wrists and then the elbows and then the shoulders and then the torso and hips and knees and all the things. And the neck, I really like it. It's it's a really great way to start the day. It's quick. I will try to find it and I'll try to link to it in the show notes if I can. But I try to do that every day and that feels like it kind of covers my bases. And then I kind of go through phases. I haven't done much else lately. I've been kind of working on my splits and I've made a little bit of progress with that, but I haven't really been taking it too seriously. I'm actually doing an episode pretty soon here with Mercedes Palmeyer. And she, I think, is an expert in this arena, and I'm really excited to talk to her. I think I might be motivated to do some more focused stretching after that. So look out for that episode coming up. Thoughts on warming up? Yeah, I think it is incredibly important. This came up in my conversation with Leif Gash, and I thought he had a great answer. Someone was asking about using different implements like bands and portable fingerboards and things versus climbing. And I think it's really good to be able to do both. I think warming up is very important and you should always do it. And how you do it, I think, depends on the circumstances. So I bring a band and a portable fingerboard. I use the tension block and I carry those in my bouldering bag always. And I almost always use those even if I climb to warm up. It's really nice to learn how to warm up without climbing if you can. So, you know, doing something to get your core temperature up and get your blood flowing and then learning how to use bands and a portable fingerboard to get your fingers and your body and your shoulders and everything warmed up. I think that's really helpful because we don't always have access to good warm-ups, but I always try to climb as my warm up when I can. I think that's really important. I think for most of us, especially those of us that started climbing later in life, we can never get too much good practice. So doing some climbs to warm up and bringing some intention to those climbs, trying to climb them really well or really focusing on a specific drill or something like that, I think that can be really good and is always the ideal way to go when you can. So yeah, those are my thoughts on warming up. I do, like I said, I always bring those tools with me, sport climbing and bouldering. And I find that like a portable hangboard can be really helpful when you're trying to rewarm up between tries on your sport climbing project on a cold day, for instance. So those are really valuable tools. Final question from Casey. She writes, so you know how when you get the coronavirus vaccine, Bill Gates will be implanting a microchip in you to track your every move? This is tongue-in-cheek, of course. Let's say that within the microchip is a button that will transport you wherever you want to go immediately with all your stuff, and you can take a person with you as well. Where would you go during a week or month? Like Oleana on Monday, Waco on Wednesday, Rifle on Friday, etc. And maybe on Thursday, you'd go to France for dinner. (laughs) 
man, the options are endless. And you know, that actually causes me some anxiety. So I think that's probably the clue to my answer here. I am someone that feels overwhelmed by the amount of opportunity we all have in our lives. I definitely suffer from FOMO and I want to do all the coolest things I can. And I really enjoy having constraints, whatever they are, whether that's deciding that I'm going to follow a specific diet so that I don't have to make as many decisions or not being able to fly to France on a Thursday for dinner. I really find a lot of comfort in having simplicity and not having an overwhelming number of options. So I think if I could press a button and go wherever, I actually wouldn't change that many things. I would probably continue to do what I'm doing. And I really like to stay in an area for a while. I really like to stay somewhere at least a month. And I like to get to know a place. And it doesn't have to be the best place in the world. I kind of like finding little hidden gems, you know, if it's a climbing area that's not necessarily a world-class area, it's really fun to find some of the cool things that you wouldn't really find if you were just passing through for a weekend or something. It's fun to kind of get to know a place like that. And you make a lot of cool memories that way. And I really enjoy that. The one thing I would do, I think, is I think I would try to find my favorite little cafe or cool little coffee shop or something like that or maybe like a little a little restaurant with like an ocean view i don't know i'd try to find a cool little thing in some in some neat little far off village somewhere in the world where i could just have my little favorite cafe that i popped into from time to time and maybe i would spend a lot of my mornings there working on the podcast that sounds like a really nice break from the van. Next questions are from Steve Bechtel, the one and only. His first question, what patterns have you seen emerge among the high performers you've interviewed? Is there something they all seem to be doing that is different than average climbers? Oh, that is the question, isn't it? I thought about this a lot. And it was definitely difficult to come up with an answer for this because there are so many different approaches that seem to work. But I think the common denominator that I came up with is that the high performers never compromise on climbing. All these people that I've had a chance to talk to, it's insane the amount of days that they climb per year. They plan their entire lives around it, whatever they have to do. If they have to change jobs, if they're not a professional climber, if they have to move, if they have to buy a new house where they can build a better wall in their garage, but usually they're getting out on rock as much as possible. Whatever they have to do, they never compromise on climbing. And, you know, I, I really like this rule from Steve that all of us should spend 75% of our time climbing or training with our climbing shoes on, doing actual climbing and only 25% in training on the fingerboard or in the weight room. And I've definitely struggled with that ratio in the past and taken the training too far. And I think what I've noticed in all these high performers that I've talked to is that, and of course, I don't know the exact percentage, but I would guess that for most of them, it's probably even closer to like 90, 10 
all of these guys and gals, they really make sure that they're climbing all the time. And if they do train, it's either just a little bit at the tail end of their climbing, or if they're training, most of their training is through hard bouldering or moonboarding or things like that, where they're actually still developing skills and doing a lot of movement. Or, you know, someone like Jonathan Segrist, who has a dedicated phase of training, it's just a few weeks a year. It's like six weeks once a year. And then the rest of the time he's climbing outside five days a week. So that is the biggest thing I've noticed. It's really had an impact on me. And I'm really trying to keep that in mind as I plan my future because I've got some big goals and I'm motivated to train again, but I want to be sure to keep that in this larger context of modeling what these high performers do and keeping climbing as the priority. So yeah, if I had to pick one thing, that would be it. Steve also asks, you live on the road. How do you keep psyched to keep on moving around? Do you ever just want to stay somewhere for a year? Yeah, I just touched on this with Casey's question. I really like to stay somewhere long enough to get the feel of it. I really like to stay somewhere for at least a month. Six weeks is even better. A couple months is even better than that. But, you know, I just had a really long period of my life where I stayed in Bend all year round, every year for seven years. And it's been really nice to have a change of pace and to be able to visit new areas and climb at a lot of the places that I've been daydreaming about for all those years. And it, yeah, it's awesome. It definitely hasn't gotten old yet. So I really enjoy a balance that's somewhere in between. I don't want to move around all the time, but it's also awesome to be able to chase the weather and always have access to local climbing wherever I am that's in season and has good conditions and new stuff that I'm psyched on. So yeah, it's been super fun. This question is from Jeffrey. Who would be your top three dream guests to interview? It's crazy. You know, I would say that I've probably interviewed all of them and it blows me away to even say that. It's kind of crazy to think, but I mean, I've been able to talk to so many of the climbers that I have looked up to already in the last year. It's been incredibly fun. You know, I've mentioned this before, but Jonathan Segrist has been a hero of mine for ages, and I had a poster of him on my wall next to my hangboard for years. Steve Bechtel is someone who I have looked up to for a long time and whose material I've been reading for over a decade. And we've exchanged some emails over all these years, and it was an absolute blast to visit those guys in Lander and have some time to sit down with Steve. And, you know, Dave McLeod is another one. I've been reading his work and following his blog for years, and so fun to finally get to jump on a Zoom call with him and ask him all my questions. You know, Ethan Pringle, another one, he's become a good friend now, and that just blows me away. I mean, he's someone who I've been looking up to since I watched King Lines back in like 2008, <laughs> him climbing this scary highball when he was like 20 years old. So, I mean, I could go on and on. I have a long list of dream guests, and some of them are coming up on the show. Some of them I have lined up right now, and... And you know, another thing I would say too is that 
A lot of my favorite episodes have actually been with people that I had never heard of before I started doing this podcast. You know, some of my favorites have even been with friends of mine who were acquaintances who I had a chance to get to know a lot better through doing this. But then some of them have just been people that I stumbled into, and those have been some of my favorite episodes. And so I think as far as dream guests, I'm just looking forward to more opportunities like that, like some of the question marks out there. You know, there's so many people out there and it's so fun to cross paths with someone and meet someone at the cliff and getting a chance to sit down and have a really interesting conversation. So, yeah, I know I dodged the question, but I can't pick just three. Jeffrey also asks, of all the top level climbers you've climbed with and interviewed, what's the most common weakness you see or has come up? Yeah, this is a good question. I definitely had to spend some time thinking about this one. I certainly don't feel qualified to comment on the weaknesses of any of these amazing climbers. The one thing I would say is that, you know, they really are all just human and it's kind of all the same human stuff that all of us struggle with, you know, whether that's insecurity or the frustrations when we don't perform well or being really hard on yourself or struggling with expectation or, you know, whatever it is, like it's all the same things. And, you know, it's really interesting to have conversations with someone like Jonathan and to hear, to, to kind of get a glimpse of how hard he can be on himself when he's not sending and to get a sense that the pain of struggling and, and, failure for him is the same as it is for anyone. And, you know, it's, it's weird. It's kind of shocking to realize that given his resume, but it's the same stuff, you know, and that drive that makes him as good as he is, that kind of thing cuts both ways sometimes. And I think that's what I would say about every single person I've talked to. I mean, it's all the same stuff, you know, like some of the best climbers I know wonder what the hell they're doing with their life and are craving more purpose and still trying to figure out how to find the balance that they're looking for. So, so yeah, that's the one thing I would point to if I had to pick one. All right, final question. Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is from Ilka. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. I hope that was at least close. This question came to me in an email and it said, since you discussed the topic of nutrition a fair amount, I would appreciate you mentioning the ethical issues behind meat production and other animal products for that matter. After all, the fate of our planet and animal suffering should concern climbers as well, not only our performance and hedonism. I dropped eating meat 16 years ago, not because of my climbing performance, but the ethical issues. And then Ilka writes, just a thought. Thanks for the great content and good luck with the podcast. So yeah, this is an excellent question and I've gotten it a few times in different forms, but there's definitely a theme here. The first thing I would say is that I have the utmost respect for you and for anyone out there who is deciding not to eat meat for environmental or ethical issues. I think that is very commendable. I do think it's a really interesting topic. I think there's a lot 
to unpack here, and I'm not going to try to do it all here. I've been thinking about doing a short solo episode where I dig into this topic because there's a lot of layers to it. But but this is something I've changed my mind about. You know, I've looked into it quite a lot at this point. And if I had to give one resource, I think the best book that I've read about this is called Sacred Cow. And I had already been kind of learning about a lot of this stuff and become interested in this stuff before the book came out. It came out pretty recently, but I read the book and it's really good. I, I think it's the best book on the topic that really covers the whole scope of the issue from the nutritional story that we're being told about meat and the environmental impacts and some of the things that are happening with regenerative agriculture and the potential for that to scale and the ethical issues as well. I think they did a really good job. So that book is written by Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers. I will link to it in the show notes. And I've read a lot of books on this topic of nutrition, you know, some leaning way on the vegan and plant-based side. And I've read a lot of books kind of across the whole spectrum. And I really try to poke holes in them when I can and really pick apart the arguments and, and try to see if arguments have a sound foundation and have research behind them. And and this is one of the few that I haven't really been able to poke any holes in. You know, there's definitely some people doing some debunks on it and things like that, but I've looked at those and they don't really seem compelling. They seem to kind of misconstrue a lot of things. So yeah, I think Sacred Cow is a really good book. It's very well researched. And if you want to go down any of the rabbit trails, there's uh, plenty of references there to dig into more deeply. So I'll link to that book in the show notes. And like I said, I'd be happy to spend a little bit more time on that topic if people are interested. And that, my friends, is it for Q&A number one. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I hope this gives you a taste of the Q&A format and kind of what to expect from my answers and what kind of questions I'd be willing to dig into. I'm an open book. I would love to talk about anything that you guys are curious about. So if you want to see your questions featured, I have updated Patreon. So there is a $10 option that allows you to submit your questions for the Q&As. And there's a $15 option where you can support Climbing for Change. Half of it will go to them. And then you'll get access to all the same perks as Tier 2. I'll be collecting questions over the next couple months and researching them and preparing my answers as needed. And then we'll do the next one after that. Oh, the last thing I'll say is that, as I've mentioned, I'm going to put together show notes for this episode. And I think what I'm going to do for the Q&As is I'm going to divide the show notes up by question. So if you asked a question or if you're interested in someone's question, and the resources that I shared for that answer, look for their question, and then all of those resources for that answer will be right beneath that. And I'll split it up that way so things are easy to find. And you can find the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for this episode. And that's it. I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. This was really fun for me. 
Thank you to everyone who submitted the questions. They were really thoughtful, really fun to think about those. And I hope some of that was helpful. So thanks again. Take care. We'll see you next time. Like we do it.